This week on the Back Table Podcast. In the late 2000s, I'm, I'm hundreds of patients in now, right? I'm, I'm beyond my own internal insecurity about, well, what am I doing? Maybe this is something wrong. Because now I'm starting to share 20 centimeter tumors that shrink down to five centimeters and 15 centimeter tumors, you know, with one treatment. I'm seeing too much that just is not something you traditionally observe with other methods. And then I'm starting to, at that time, Chris, starting to get some feedback and positive feedback from non-IRs, surgeons that say, hey, thanks for downstaging this. Wow, look at this PVT that disappeared, right? Again, there's no seraphinib back then. You can't taste a PVT patient. And now we're embolizing PVT patients and they're disappearing and retracting and getting resected, right? We're breaking all sorts of classical teaching rules. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bacterial Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our medical community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Now a quick word from our sponsor. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Spex LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Spec's shapeable support catheter. And the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. And now back to the show. I have a show for you guys that I'm excited to unpack. We're going to be talking about Therospheres. Not so much the Y90 procedure. We have some good content on that, and there's tons of good content all over the place on that. But we're going to be talking about the company Therospheres. To help me with this, we have Dr. Riyad Salem and Peter Pattison. So Riyad, a man who needs no introduction, I think most people in the IR and interventional space will recognize Dr. Salem from Backtable episode 223, where we talk about portal vein recanalizations. Riyad, do you want to do just a quick introduction, and then we'll get to know Peter a little bit? Yes. Thanks, Chris. So my name is Riyad Salem. I'm a chief of interventional at Northwestern. I've been here since 2003 and really uh, been fortunate to focus on my areas of interest, which are interventional oncology and more contemporarily biliary hypertension, portal vein stuff. But interventional oncology is really my true original passion. I'm very fortunate to focus on that in my career. All right, Riyad, welcome back to the show. All right, Peter, introductions. Tell us about yourself, man. Hello, Chris. Uh, yeah, Peter Pattison. I'm the president of Interventional Oncology and Embolization Division here at Boston Scientific. And I'm coming to you from my home in up, up, upstate New York, also called uh, Ottawa. Awesome. All right, great. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. All right, so we're going to be talking about Therospheres, not so much the nuts and bolts of the procedure, but the company, the origin story of Therospheres. So, Peter, why don't we start with you? So, will you just give us a background, like, where did Therapheres come from? Like, did you invent it? Did Riyadh invent it? Like, where did this product come from? Right. Also, I'll get to me. I just sort of got dumb and lucky uh, in my career and, and just kind of happened upon it. It's kind of a fun story. There was two colleagues at University of Missouri in the 80s who got together. And one was a professor of ceramic materials at University of Missouri. His name is Delbert Day, and he had a colleague working at the University of Missouri Research Reactor named uh, Gary Earhart. And the two of them got together, like that whole concept, you know, hey, who put, won't put your chocolate in my peanut butter? And they got together and said, hey, I'm good at glass, and then I'm good at radiopharmaceuticals and nuclear chemistry, so let's put them together. And the concept of atrium microsphere had been around, I think, since the 60s, but the two of them got together and expressly made this product intentionally. Let's make a really good product that would kind of not leach and that would provide a high dose of yttrium-90 once you put it into a nuclear reactor. So they, got, they published this in 1987, so really 35 years ago. And they, had the, um, they did the preliminary animal work with an IR named um, Jim Abrams when he was at University of Michigan. He's uh, since moved over to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and that turned into a first human study, there was a proof of concept of 10 patients in 1992. It's important, I think, because it was a female physician, a medical oncologist in the early 90s, 
Francis Shepard at University of Toronto. They did 10 patients and they found it did okay. It didn't really hurt anybody. And they went, uh, got that to um, up to 100 gray and put it into context. Now we're, we're certainly well over that. For that 1992 publication, Jim Andrews and his team at the University of Michigan did a phase one dose escalation study and published that in 1994, where they went from 50 gray up to Dr. Shepard's 100 gray, and then up again to 150 gray, which has become our norm for low bar infusion and in how we used to dose. And uh, we used that. And, and so that, that's kind of the early work. And it was licensed from University of Michigan to the company where I happened to get my very first job as an adult. That was a company called Nordion. Nordion has been since bought by a company called BWXT, and they're still the manufacturers to this day. But Nordion was a B2B company, a business-to-business company. They would take raw radiochemical from a nuclear reactor, they would process it, and then they would, again, sell that to radiopharmaceutical companies like Mallinckrodt and Amersham and GE. And they had a concept of, we're in the radiochemistry business, radiochemical business, we should in-license products, besides just being at the bottom of that food chain, we should go not just radiochemical, but we should go all the way up to finished products. So let's try that. So they got really interested for a period of time in products that you could treat patients with or that consumers could use. Things like radioactive sterilization of food, which is still important in parts of the world. Radioactive band-aids, right, for a basal cell carcinoma or something. And one of them was they licensed Therosphere from, um, from Delbert and Gary Earhart. So we took that phase one study from, from Jim Andrews and got what's called the humanitarian device exemption. Hold on, but before we get too far into that, so at this point, you're at Nordian, right? Or Nordian, sorry. Riyadh, where are you at this point? Like, have you entered into the story of Therospheres? No, not, not yet. So this is, I think, what Peter's describing in the late 90s, not 2000 yet. So I just finished my fellowship. I'm at UW-Madison, my first job. Okay, so we're still in late 90s. But now we're at Nordion. We're talking about humanitarian exemption. Yeah. So this is just, I'm just, this is the, this is the prehistory, the antiquity. But the point was based on this, I thought it was important that, that some of that history and how IR was involved from these early stages, I think was, was important. So it culminated with Nordion licensing it in and getting this humanitarian device exemption, which in other words is the FDA lets a company sell it, but the institution has to treat it like an IRB, like it's investigational. So we got that in 1999. Anyway, and then I, I show up for my first real job. I thought I was going to be a great scientist. I, I worked for Roche Pharmaceuticals for a couple of years, destroyed a, a tabletop centrifuge one day, and that's when I had the epiphany that I, I, I don't belong here. It was pretty clear to, to me at that point and the other people in the lab that I didn't belong. So um, I moved back to Canada and got a, an MBA. So now I'm a slick, polished MBA. I know how to use spreadsheets and PowerPoint, and I got a job at, at Nordion. And uh, Nordion, as I said, they were trying to get into end products. But after 12 months, maybe 18 months of trying to do an end product, including a misadministration, I think the very first one they did was a misadministration in late 2000 at Pittsburgh. And they had a couple of missteps with FDA. They said, you know, it's a, this isn't us. We got to go back to our knitting. We got to go back to just good old fashioned radiochemical production. And I was a new slick MBA there. And they said, Peter, we're going to give you a, a six month project. We need you to out-license Therosphere to somebody else, or we need you to pack it up and, and kill it. It's just, we can't have this. It's costing money. It's making us look bad with FDA. We're having misadministrations in the United States. This isn't really, it's not our jam. So this is the part where I got, I was dumb. I didn't know what I was doing at this point. And after a few months into my six-month project, I said, I think this, this could actually work. I think just, maybe we just didn't do it right. And it looks kind of cool. So I asked permission from our CEO. I said, can you give me one year? Give me one year with this technology because I think we could really make a goal of it if we just kind of maybe do it a bit differently, put some resources behind. I think we should make a goal of it. And he said, okay, I'll give you a year. But I need to see some progress. And the part where I got lucky was I bumped into this young upstart whippersnapper IR at uh, Beaumont. It was Riyadh. Where is Beaumont? It's in Michigan. It's just north of Detroit. William Beaumont Hospital in, in Troy, Michigan. Gotcha. All right. So, you, okay, this is where the, the dynamic duo connects. Gotcha. That's right. And so this is my dumb and lucky opportunity. The reason I got 
lucky as I met, I met uh, Riyadh and he thought, I'll let Riyadh jump in here, but he thought it was pretty cool. And so he started ordering doses and trying it. So all of a sudden I looked like a genius to my CEO because I get my hands on it. And a few months later, Riyadh joins Beaumont. He went for it. And so my CEO's like, Patterson, you're brilliant. Uh, we'll take you off of this 12-month leash and let's uh, let's go for it. So maybe Riyadh uh, can jump in from his angle. Yeah. I mean, the, the cool part to take from what Peter's talking about is I had left uh, Wisconsin and, and started at Beaumont because they brought me there to do interventional oncology to, to you know, to expand it. And I'm, I was pen trained, right, Chris? So, you know, I was a, a blader and a, and a chemo embolizer, right? That's what we were doing in the late 90s without level one evidence, mind you, right? But, you know, this is what we were doing. So, I believe in chemo embolization. I still believe in chemo embolization, but the benefit was you're getting good results, et cetera, but there's an adverse event profile there that's tough, right? PES, post it hurts. So you got to give a patient meds. You got constipated. There's a little bit of hair loss. You got to be in the hospital for a few days. And so that to me was the world. That was my world. That's normal. That's how you do things. That's how you treat liver tumors. And then comes this other approach, which is same sort of thing, a wire, a catheter, uh, we didn't have cone beam back then, but, you know, basically angiography, hypervascularity, and you infuse something else and patient doesn't hurt and they go home and you get results and the tumors shrink. And so everything I had known about the embolization world was sort of being turned on its head because maybe I can get the same result without the adverse event. At this point, it's not about whether we think we can increase survival at this point. It's whether I can get the same result in a much gentler way, in a much more patient-friendly way. And that, to me, was the most compelling component of it. It's like, I'm injecting this stuff, I'm seeing great responses, don't hurt, they go home, there's no hair loss, there's no meds, no pain. And so this is completely changing the way I see and understand embolotherapy. Now, as far as like bringing that on, like how many years out of fellowship were you at this point? Four and a half. Okay. And... Was it a little nerve wracking? I mean, like, did you have anyone to draw experience on to how you did the procedure, how you did the mappings? No, zero, zero percent. You know, I mean, all I had was what the HGE said and said, you're supposed to do a mapping. You're supposed to do a mapping and do a lung shunt study because you're worried about what the lung dose is going to be. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, all right. I'll do, I'll do some angiograms and I'll inject some MAA and see where it goes. And this was at the time, but we were one of one or two or three shops in the country that had a portable gamma camera. So the page, you inject the MAA and, and this old gamma camera is being wheeled into the room and we just put it over the patient's belly and it looks like there's a little bit in the lung and here's the percentage and good luck to you. So yeah, so we're doing inpatient in-room MAA scans and then we know we, we move from there, but no, there was no, there was no guidance. There, none of that stuff existed. So, so this is the early days. So like Peter, from your perspective, like once you met up with Riyadh and you guys were doing cases, can you talk about like what those early experiences were like? Riyadh's got his experience. He's treating patients. He likes his results. He likes that risk profile. How are you guys internalizing that? Like what, what's going on behind the scenes or on, on the other side? Just uh, mass confusion and a lot of question marks, basically. I didn't even use the term medical device. Again, I had done a biochemistry undergrad a couple of years at a pharmaceutical company. For me, it was a radioactive product. And Nordion is world-class at manufacturing, processing, handling isotopes. We didn't have a sales team. We do contracts with reactors, contracts with pharmaceutical companies, you know, for five years. So we didn't have a sales team really to speak of, certainly not one that called on hospitals and physicians. So we didn't really do marketing. Uh, we didn't have a medical team. We didn't have a clinical team. So we were really, you know, every kind of company has its personality of how it's led, right? I'm at Boston Scientific now. That's very much kind of a marketing-led, commercially-led company. Uh, Nordian was an operationally-led company. So the kind of the direction and the personality and the style was focused around quality, quality assurance, regulatory affairs, and production. So that's kind of the perspective we were coming at it from, right? So in terms of how do we move forward? What's our plan? We didn't really have that sort of direction. The concept, again, of doing clinical trials, having medical stat, that was new. I did get permission, though. This was my brainwave, by the way. Just I want to take credit for something here. Yeah, I had the idea of hiring four salespeople. I thought if we had salespeople, uh, we could actually sell it. So so we did. So I, we got four salespeople. That's that MBA working for you, right? 
used to seeing the PowerPoint I put together, the business model. If we had salespeople, we're going to increase revenue. It was cutting edge at the time. And uh, I was allowed to hire one internal person. Uh, her name's Bonnie Hamilton, and she was with this product for a super long time. Um, she's since retired. But that brain trust was really some folks in quality and regulatory, uh, me and Bonnie. And um, we got a consultant who helped us out, helped us decide how we proceed to your question about clinical medical practice. How do we develop a procedure? Should we do a clinical trial? And uh, he's worked with uh, Reid and I for a long time. His name's Ken Thurston. We called him the white mushroom. We call him that to this day. Hold on. Why do you call him the white mushroom? Because he's, he's got like a, he looked like one of the Beatles, but it was just white as driven snow, like a page boy haircut. And he, he's still around. He's still consulting and helping out. But um, a lot of those early days was uh, Ken and Rhea and myself and Bonnie and trying to just figure it out. Uh, what, what do we, what do we do? So Riyad, at this point, are you affiliated with Nordion? Are you just a physician that they sell to and, and you're just trying to help? At this point, I'm, I'm a KOL, just again, to contextualize the environment. Whoever developed or, or worked on this product was smart enough to at least get a C code for reimbursement. So Medicare actually paid for the device, right? So I mean, because otherwise the whole Y90 technology would be, and if it wasn't for actual reimbursement, right? So so it's being reimbursed. So, so I can function because at least the hospital is being paid, you know, and you're making money on everything else. And so that was really good. But also understand the context of the IRB, right? I mean, so I have an IRB for HCC and heaven forbid you want to do metastatic disease, off-label work, you know, the challenges there. And what do you mean? What is this? What is this in HD? What does that mean? We're safe with probable benefit. What does that mean? We know PMAs. We know 510Ks. We don't know what HDE means. And so, you know, for, for years, all you're doing is explaining to people what an HDE is. And again, this is 2000. So taste hadn't been proved to improve survival. There's no serafinib. Oxorubicin was a drug people were using. You know, so there are a few treatments available that had high level of evidence for, for HCC. And so I'm trying to you know, develop this concept, which I thought was very intriguing because I'm getting good results with basically no PES in this environment where everybody's questioning, what the hell are you doing? Because it's an, H, it's an IRB and how much paperwork do you need and how much support do you need, et cetera. So it was, it was a very challenging time from a regulatory standpoint, let alone trying to get experience with patients and referring clinicians to explain to them, you know, what this new therapy is all about. So that, these were the early days. What was like the next inflection point from your perspective, Peter? Like, I mean, so at this point, I'm assuming it's just not Riyadh using it. I mean, like there are other people, he's a KOL, but there are other people, you, you have a sales force, but like, when did y'all go from a small number of people and it's kind of tough to explain to referring docs, like what was the next, like where you felt like you guys leveled up? Yeah, great question. It, well, I'll tell you this. I, I even in fact had a that at one point, like how many, how many other sites do I have ordering other than at this point, North Riyadh moved to Northwestern. So I'm interested in Riyadh's kind of opinion on this. I think it's when we started then to get, besides like, oh my gosh, we think it works. We know how to treat. We know how to get reimbursed. Then I think we started to turn into like, we got to prove this thing clinically now. So I'd say kind of 04, 05, 06, 07, kind of early 2000s like that. It was, let's get abstracts in. Let's go to SIR and let's put it out there and see what people think. And that was exciting for me. Again, I'm super green at this point. But it was frustrating too, because I think, oh my gosh, we got such great data. Riyadh's got, and a few other folks might have 20 patient case series or more and put it in, get an abstract accepted. Oh my gosh, it's up on the podium. This is going to be amazing. And my perspective at the time, again, being young and naive, just the negative response that we got. And just, it's, it's, I get it now and then I've, I've grown up a little bit. Just it's, it's scientific rigor. Just because you do 20 patients doesn't mean you, you've solved everything. Um, but it was that constant push now. We went from the euphoria of, okay, no more administrations. We think we know what we're doing. We got a process and a reimbursement code. It was trying to get acceptance into not just IR, forget the rest of the community, oncology world, but just acceptance in the IR world because we kept getting told you don't have, it's not like taste, you don't have, you're not, you're not standard of care. And it was really hard. Uh, Nordion was not comfortable investing forward into clinical trials in those days. So we were relying on case series from uh, IRs and it was highs and lows just of kind of getting pushed back. So how do you just kind of be 
deliberate and keep pushing forward, but it felt like you were just, yeah, pushing a wet noodle up the hill year after year after year. But we knew we were making progress at the same time. So Riyadh was the one that was carrying a lot of the water then. Yeah. So let me give some parallel context there. So in 2003, this was too much for BOMA. It was like, whoa, what is all this stuff? This news and, and new concepts and new therapies and television news stations are calling to find out about this and patients are calling about it. So it's like, what is this new stuff that's much better tolerated and better for patients? And it was clear to me that I was not in the environment that was going to let me thrive. It was just too much for them. They're just not comfortable, you know, with new innovative advances back then. And so, you know, my friends here at Northwestern, they're like, hey, come over here, do what you want, open policy here, and, you know, we'll let you do what you want. And I would tell you, I've been here 20 years and 20 years later, I get to do what I want, when I want and work and develop. And it's been just a fantastic opportunity for me. And they were very, very wise to, to let me do that. And so I'm moving to, to Northwestern now to really up this game. I got, you know, I'm in, in a CCN guidelines. I'm in, I'm in a, you know, a comprehensive cancer center, you know, guys that are really asking tough questions. But like Peter was saying, at this point now, you know, I've treated 100 people, 120 people. I have some response rates. I've got some, you know, the beginnings of a TTP and, you know, we're presenting. But Peter's not wrong. I mean, there were there was four, five, six years of, you know, what the hell are you doing? What is this stuff? Because this is where, you know, drug-eluting beads were coming. You know, it's like everybody's like, oh, Dabs is better than CTase and should be doing this. And People think you're a little cuckoo, you know, in the society because it was basically mostly me. Others, you know, with their early experience, but it's it's not easy, you know. I mean, yes, you're ten years out, so you've grown some some thick skin, but it's not easy when you know people you respect, admire, you try to emulate are like taking you, at, you know, in the corner and say, "Hey, yo, dude, people are looking at you like funny kind of deal." So you, you have to sort of fight that back. So it was it was a bit of a challenging time because you really had to make sure that you. Were, your conviction was well established. It's like, what is this my dreaming? Like, am I really, how am I seeing a 10 centimeter tumor become two centimeter? That can't be anecdotal. So it, it was challenging during that time. It, we're talking the, kind of like the mid aughts, right? Like, is, is this, is this a point where it still could have gone either way? It seems like Nordion wasn't fully invested. You have a, a good KOL who's like pushing it forward, but not getting like widespread acceptance. What was the next step that, from you guys' perspective, like strategically, that needed to happen to go from a couple of people are using it to, hey, this is really could be something that people are putting into like their algorithm? Well, I'll, I'll go first here. I guess the other thing that too, around that time, a company called BTG came out with drug-eluting beads. And I remember being told multiple times by IRs and industry people, just pack up and go home because now they've got chemobilization on a bead, a twofer, and that's going to revolutionize. It's going to make therapy look antiquated. Before taste was, what do I know here, but just a bit hard to administer, a bit messy oil and, and beads, and now they've got it. It's all neat and tidy in a single process, single product. And so that was really hard to see some of our early users move over to, to Debs, and it didn't feel like we were really getting super adoption. And I think a couple of things happened in my perspective. One is Right around kind of 2011, Nordion decided after much kind of push from Riyadh and Ken Thurston and myself that we should actually do a clinical trial. And we, we set up two. One was called EPOC, which was looking at colorectal metastases to the liver. And the other one was called STOP, uh, which looks at HCC. And um, this is from a company that had never done a clinical trial before. And we found this doing a device trial in an oncology context, you have to follow FDA rules and FDA rules are heavily cemented in your classic pill trials. And so trying to do an interventional radiology trial in that traditional oncology pill paradigm, super hard. And in fact, Epoch, jump ahead for a sec, Epoch just reported out last summer. It was presented at ESMO, European Society of Medical Oncology and it was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology just last year, and that it was the first randomized controlled phase three trial that actually had a positive outcome for, for interventional oncology. So it took forever, right? Clinical trials should not take 10 years. Um, and STOP is probably going to report out in 2023. It's still, still baking. But the commitment to do those trials, that was big money. 
and that that was huge uh, for Nordion to step up and do that. If you don't mind me asking, like, what does it cost to run a trial like that? I mean, like when you say big money, like, I mean, you don't have to give us the exact number, but... Yeah, oh, d- tens of millions. And I, I'm saying that not to be cagey, I just don't know. It, the trials run for 10 years, so I'm not exactly sure what the total number is. If you really want to step up, you want to take IR, put it in mainstream oncology, you got to do their kind of trial. And these are 500 patient trials. And, and combining a device and a pharmaceutical is... It's a different league, right? And that's why it's fine for pharmaceuticals to do that because they can charge hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the day for, for a, if a product's successful. You can't do that for a device. Uh, and the second thing that for me that turned that inflection point up was getting bought. Uh, we decided that Therosphere couldn't thrive at this radiochemical company. And so we sold it to BTG. Like when you say we, Nordion sold it. Correct. Me and my CEO, after a several months discussion, just said this doesn't fit in the radiochemical company profile, we have a med tech inside a, almost like utility stock. It doesn't fit. So let's sell the asset, Therosphere, plus you know a handful of people, 20 of us, to the highest bidder, and we sold it to, to BTG. So who really turned into a, a commercial, more of a commercial model? Up until then, it was me, Bonnie, and four salespeople, six salespeople. It wasn't going to, it was never going to leave that. So committing to the clinical trials, and then a year or two later, getting sold to a more of a med tech company is, for me, what really changed the trajectory. But Riyad was on the other side of that. Yeah. So let me let, let me add the color portion to the color commentary Peter, here. Yeah. Yeah. P- Peter gave you the facts. Let, let me give you the <laughs> color. So the color here is so taste is the gold standard. People are shifting to Debs. Biocompatibles is a Debs company, and it's always like Y ninety versus Debs, and like what's going on and this and that, but. There's just, just so much more momentum in the Debs world and the Y90 space uh, that, you know, people are up there lecturing, speaking, Deb did better control, better response, all these better stuff. And, you know, I was unconvinced. I was unconvinced and I was vocally unconvinced. There was just this wave of perception that the drug eluding beat approach was going to be better tolerated and better controlled and better dilution, et cetera. And I just did not see that the evidence that way and did not feel like there was enough of a clinical difference that the Y90 generated compared to CTAs that de- did compared to CTAs. And so, you know, this is, this is going on in the backdrop. And so there's this competition between, you know, Debs and Y90 as sort of the newcomers and certainly for years, the drug eluding bead platform outshined the Y90 for sure, always. Well, I think I know what you mean by outshine, but that's tough. And I guess the question that I want to ask is, like, what kept you going? Like, why? Hold on. There's a better question there. How did that make you feel, Riyadh? Well, yeah, but like, I mean, like, I, I could just only imagine, like, not just SIR, but the wave of IR is going one way and you're swimming, like, counter to that. Well, Chris, I think what you're, what you're asking is, is, is what, what provided me with, with a rationale to continue to swim against sort of everybody else? What was I seeing? And the other day, in the late 2000s, I'm, I'm hundreds of patients in now, right? I'm, I'm beyond my own internal insecurity about, well, maybe this is, maybe what, what am I doing? Maybe this is something wrong. Because now I'm starting to share 20 centimeter tumors that shrink down to five centimeters, and 15 centimeter tumors, you know, with one treatment. I'm seeing too much that just is not something you traditionally observe with other methods. And so that's what I'm seeing. And patient outcomes, and then downstage to transplant. And then I'm starting to, at that time, Chris, starting to get some feedback and positive feedback from non-IRs. Surgeons that say, hey, thanks for downstaging this. Wow, look at this PVT that disappeared, right? Again, there's no seraphinib back then. You can't taste a PVT patient. And now we're, we know we're embolizing PVT patients and they're disappearing and retracting and getting resected, right? We're breaking all sorts of classical teaching rules at that time. And so I'm starting to get positive feedback, unfortunately, not from the IR, but I'm getting feedback. And can you also paint the picture of what's the adoption of Therospheres at this point? Like, not just at like Northwestern, but US-based. Yeah. So, I mean, Peter can talk more of the numbers, but there's clearly now people that are starting to recognize methodology, the technique. I'm training a bunch of people. People are coming to Chicago for training. 
We used to call it Therosphere University. You know, it's not called Center of Excellence, but people would come, a lot of people, 40, 50, 60 people at a time would come and spend the day and we'd do a training session to talk about everything that I know, which is not everything. I, there's a lot of things I didn't know, but the rationale, and this is, this is, you know, Peter, who had the foresight to prove this kind of program was, okay, I've made all the mistakes with this therapy early on. I know, you know, now I know what to do, what not to do. I still need to fine tune. So have people come in and rather than have everybody go through their learning curve and get their GI ulcer and ignore the right gastric and all this sort of stuff, let me tell them what not to do and they can jump over the adverse event phase of early technology and go right to great outcomes, right? That's the rationale. And if you can make that work, that's a pretty compelling story. Yeah. So Peter, what is it looking like from your end? Well, we had mentioned Therese University. I remember him and I were on a car ride to present at Mayo. We were both very pumped because Lewis Roberts, super nice man, hepatologist, invited Riyadh to come and speak. And we had this car ride brainwave of, we should maybe set up a training program. Again, so after, after my idea of hiring salespeople, it was my second good idea. We should train people at it. And the Therese University, we just said, let's call it that. And I remember going back, one of our corporate lawyers, after doing it for a few years, said, you actually, we're going to have to change the name. We're going to have to call it something else because I don't want to get our company get sued by people thinking it's a degree granting university. So we, we can't call it a university anymore. So we changed the Center of Excellence, which seems to be a much more vanilla common name for programs these days. But we're limited. Nordion was not comfortable adding more than six salespeople. So we just couldn't open very many sites. I think the sites we were going to open, Tria's point, we wanted them to know what they were doing. And again, when, when you're trying to create a new procedure and you're trying to get people to use it and, and trying to generate data, you get one or two slip-ups and then it's like, yeah, confirmation by said, yeah, see, told you, told you it didn't work, told you it's dangerous. So that's something Red kept pounding into my head is we have to make sure people are well-trained because if they're not and there's an incident, they're going to blame the new upstart technology. So that training program became really important and it became a thing through several years. Like, hey, I'm going to Northwestern. I'm going to go get, go get trained at the Center of Excellence, formerly known as TSU. And we really didn't hit our stride until um, we were bought by Biocompatibles, or BTG, I should say, that had the drug-eluting beads. And that was initially awkward, quite honestly. Rhea and I were coming in feeling like we're, we're fighting the world, trying to get people to use this and and everyone had already found religion in drug looting beads and that was that was the answer and then to be bought by them it was uh oh are they buying us to kind of put us on the sidelines are they buying us to grow us how are you going to have drug looting beads and their sphere how do you do that so that took it ended up being for me i think for Rhea too it was a, it was the best thing to really make this a lot more mainstream and global because then we went from a six person sales team with no medical support so now we had uh, medical science liaisons, technical people in the field supporting training. Uh, we could afford broader training, training programs. We got up to maybe, I think, 20 to 30 sales people. So that's when it really we really started to get sites and communities that had never heard or maybe heard of it from a fringe, but no one had darkened their door on how to train or how to use it. And that's when it really took off. Who's doing all the training? Like, I mean, you guys went from like, seems like six people who knew what was what to now like a team of like 40. We created a, a role that's more, more common in pharmaceutical world called a medical science liaison. Essentially, people who had a PhD or MD who could know this fairly technically and hold their ground with an IR or with a surgeon, for example. Their university was becoming quite, we we're doing it quite regularly. And then we opened up another one uh, with Dr. Ed Kim at Sinai. Um, and we opened up, I think, a, a third, but we started to kind of open funnel, essentially, it, what it was. And then we kind of, I think we just jumped that chasm there from being, was there a certain point in time, but that where you're fighting all the time to get an abstract in, people telling you it's not real, to then it just seemed, it wasn't overnight, but it seemed like one of these 20-year overnight sensation garage bands, right? Then Now they have a, a top 40 song. Like the mid-teens, I guess, what it really felt like, oh my gosh, that people think this is real now. And it just passed that tipping point of pushback to People think it's a common procedure, right? And it would be always cool for me when I'd meet new IRs who come into their first job saying how, yeah, I'm, of course, you know, I'm using Therosphere, I'm using Y90. And it just seemed like, how did this all happen? So quote so quickly, but I know it wasn't. The other thing that I think is important to highlight at this time is 
you know, I spent most of, you know, 2003 to 2010 slowly and meticulously publishing methodology and techniques manuscripts. What vessel is, where do you put your catheter? What do you inject? What are you looking for? Why are you doing that? You know, that that's what led to the, the manifesto that I published in JVIR. I don't know if you ever saw that, but published a three-part pa paper in JVIR in 2006 that was 101 pages, single-spaced PDF when I submitted it. That's because people were asking me the same question over and over. How do you do this? What about this? What about so so I, just, I just turned that sort of that thought to paper. And if you look at what I published in that time, it's all slow and meticulous, increasing what we know and what we don't know. And I would tell you that it is the advent of Y90 that has made us all better and geographers looking for gastrics, falciforms, accessory hepatics. You know, before, as you know, Chris, we do a chemoembolization, patient belly pain. Oh yeah, that's PS. Well, probably 30% of the time it's non-target. It's probably some chemo in the right gastric or the accessory because we didn't, we didn't look for that stuff. The other important piece that, that again, I'm grateful for, for Peter and him to help me work on was it felt to me like because Radon completely ignored this technology, this technology was not going to go anywhere unless IRs were the authorized users. It's not going to happen, all right? A nuke med guy is not going to come and inject for you regularly, and a Radon, that's not their practice to be in angel suites and labs, right? So I spent a fair amount of time at the NRC testifying, petitioning, justifying idea that IRs should become the authorized users, and that's the only way to function. And imagine now, Chris, imagine if that didn't exist, right? And so that was a big thing because that now opened the floodgates for people saying, okay, I'm qualified, here's my 80 hours, here's everything, I'm, you know, uh, AU eligible, et cetera. Boom, now I can function. I can do three, four, five cases a day, not one, and match it with the vacation time of the rat onk or the nuke med guy to see if we can do it, right? So now it allowed you to multiply, you know, the frequency with which you wanted to practice this craft. And to me, that was a big win because... Again, I think this another reason other than the C code is this technology would be dead if it wasn't for IRs as they use. So you kind of like spoke to like one of the hurdles that you had to overcome. If you had to look back, Riyadh, what do you think was the biggest hurdle until Y90 was going to have more mainstream adoption? Like, do you think it was research? Do you think it was the AU compilation? I mean, I think a bunch of little things. I mean, certainly I think, you know, as a, as a human you know, with feelings and emotions, it, it's hard to go years with people looking at you funny, say, what are you doing? What is this new therapy? How come you're not doing taste on everybody? What, what are you thinking? This is crazy. You're conflicted, right? You're conflicted. Obviously, I, have a, I had a conflict of interest. I was an advisor, right? So I'm conflicted, right? So everything is explained away by me having a conflict, for example. It's tough. It's tough to do that because that's not what it was. And, you know, hindsight shows that that's not what it was. And where we are now shows that none of those accusations were correct and those perceptions were correct because this is the kind of technology that I always tell people is pulled into the market. Yeah, sure, Peter can hire 100 people and do an element of pushing. But at the end of the day, now with contemporary training programs, this stuff's pulled. People go say, hey, I need my Y90. I need the Y90 in my program. It's not pushed. And I sort of felt like a lot of the Deb stuff needed to be pushed and Y90 was pulled, you know? So Clinicians pulled it, but the devs was pushed by industry. And so it was a big thing. And obviously all these little things, you know, um, the AU status was a, was a big hurdle. Sometimes some manufacturing challenges with Therosphere were big hurdles. Some device malfunction with, you know, the kits that needed to be improved. Well, now, now what am I going to do? You know, et cetera. So it's, it's, all these little things are, are, are very challenging. But then when we got into the NCCN guidelines, right, I was on the NCCN panel for several years and finally got into the HCC guidelines and neuroendocrine guidelines. That's also a big thing. It, it validates what you are doing. And ultimately, you know, 20 years later, the fact that, you know, this is a, obviously in your toolbox, you sort of alluded to that early, Chris, it's in your toolbox. You can't practice modern IR and manage liver tumors without having this in your toolbox somewhere, you know, part of your algorithm. And so all that stuff is, is validating evidence that, you know, this is the real deal. And, you know, you have to take some chances back then to make this happen, but you know, that's, that's ultimately where we are. Been vindicated from that perspective. Yeah. I was going to add to that. Just from my industry perspective, what I take away from kind of the last 20 years is 
If you focus, this sounds just kind of trite, but I, I mean it. If you focus on the patient outcomes and you record that in data, in publications, you're going to win. You're all, you'll always win. And it just that just takes time, right? Building on Riyadh's point, you can do a quick splash. You can do all the marketing in the world. You can have all the salespeople. By the way, Riyadh, that comment of 100 salespeople, that might be my next big idea. But that's the push Riyadh's talking about. But that's not a long-term solution. If really, it sounds trite, but if you just focus on patient outcomes and capturing that in data, you're going to win. It's patience. How do you, be, how do you sort of be impatient and patient at the same time? It, it takes a long time to generate data. This is a tough disease. Of course. So one of the things I want to ask about before we get too far from the early days, when you look back, Peter, what were some of like the miscues? Like if, if you had it to do over again, are there any things that you're like, man, if we just wouldn't have done that or that set us back or this was like something like we just had to go through? Like, do you think, does anything kind of stand out? Well, it's something we didn't do, right? And if I had known more early days, I wouldn't have ridden that HDE for as long as we did. I would have gone to FDA for let's get this approved. So it's a classic. I'd rather run into that wall and FDA says, no, then what are we going to do after that? And then what's your next move? It's That's the kind of, this the whole innovation concept. How do you run into that wall first and you either break through it or you bounce off it? Because the FDA changes over time, right? What you need to get approval for HCC in probably 2002, 2003, 2004 was probably way different than what's required now. So I, I feel like now we finally did get PMA for HCC last year. On it was on NHC for 20 years. For me, it would have been try to fail faster and, and try to get that PMA years earlier because who knows where we would be. Right now, we're just starting to get into new indications, new diseases outside the liver. But if we had finished this work so much earlier, uh, we'd be further ahead than where we are now. I mean, for me, you know, trying to, trying to be as introspective as I can, Chris, I, I wonder whether, you know, I, I was insufficiently attuned to my communication skills with my IR colleagues to explain what it is that I was observing, right? I mean, I was really dying to share this kind of exciting experiences I was seeing with these patients and maybe, maybe a different way to message that, to communicate that so that there would have been more early adopters. Because again, think about probably exponentially what happens if you have two, three, four, five earlier adopters, one, two, three, four, five years earlier, you know, all of the things that Peter's talking about now happened five to eight years before, which, you know, is sometimes a device, a device half-life almost. And so, you know, had I been better able to communicate that, maybe we'd be, we'd be further ahead because it, we just spent too much time trying to convince people of the basics. And then the reverse, I think, is also true. Sometimes people, you, you have to have an open mind sometimes, right? I mean, you have to step back. It's your obligation. You may have your beliefs. You may have your perceptions, but still back, try something for five cases, see how it goes, criticize it. And you are much more armed to criticize something once you've done that, as opposed to just poo-pooing something up front. And, you know, that's something that I think people could have done because again, I would have learned more, Peter would learn more, we would have known more earlier, more people are, are informing this field. And again, things just would have moved faster. So I, I think the communication was was something that Probably I should have done a little bit better. And, and you know, that's, that's part of learning and being young and, and you know, le relatively less mature. So I wanted to take a little bit of a left turn. We've talked about Debs like being the competitor or like you talked about, like it was Debs versus what you guys were doing. What about resin? Can you describe the climate, Riyadh? Like you're talking about glass, you're talking about Therospheres and then paint a picture like what it was like with people who were getting an early experience with Therospheres. I don't shy away from my experience with resin. And I did about four or 500 cases of resin in the early 2000s. There was a time when manufacturing with Therosphere was a challenge. And so, you know, that was a good opportunity to get all the resin experience. And in fact, if you look at my early papers, they all talk about glass and resin. I mean, all the techniques for resin are the ones I published a long time ago. But at some point, to me, you sort of have to decide what, you know, what you like or not like about certain things. And at the time, resin was still, quote, embolic. People don't like to say embolic about it. I get it. But, you know, there's early stasis, reflux, uh, you know, now they've changed the formulation. Now they're making them hotter. Clearly, it wasn't satisfying the need, the unmet need that Therosphere was, was satisfying, which to me was the following. If I want to put 150 gray in there, I can do it, Chris. If I want to put 300, I can do it. If I want to put 500, I can. It may be wrong, and I'm going to learn from it, but I can do what I'm prescribing to do. If half the time you're prescribing something and you can't put it in, then it's really not standardized anymore. So it was more like 
case in that you prescribe 10 milligrams, you put in four or three or two or whatever. And so the predictability and the fact that I can put 100 gray and Ed Kemp could put 100 gray and Bill Rilling could put 100 gray is a very good advantage. Now we got to figure out what that dose is. And so that was happening. And so, look, I published a techniques paper on resin and how you should do it and what you should be looking for because I thought that was important to do. But since then, obviously I've shied away because I like lower number of spheres that are going to get you the dose that you are prescribing 100% of the time. That's a very attractive concept when you think about it. It's one of very few where we have actually prescriptive dosimetry that we can do almost all the time. So Peter, from your perspective, like one of the things I was interested about is like having, if you can call it competition with Surspheres on the business end, can you kind of describe either ways that made their spheres better or it made the road harder? Yeah, great question. So baseline too was that we were indicated for HCC. They're indicated for colorectal metastasis to the liver. So as a default, we kind of compete in different hospitals, generally speaking, especially in those early days. If you have HCC, you're going to go to a tertiary center, transplant center. So that's where we focused on the 100 transplant centers. So we didn't see a lot of them. And a lot of colorectal metastases is done out in the community hospitals. So they would, they would spend their time there. And again, we had a very small team. So we didn't really bump into each other a lot. But it's kind of like um, a, you know, a sports analogy. I like hockey. It's a team that you like to play against. You compete hard against, but you kind of respect each other and maybe go for beer after. So there's lots of folks from former Surtex I know. We can have a beer together, shoot the breeze, talk about IRs and how kind of helpful, but also crazy they are at times and kind of commiserate on our customer base. So we, we would get on fairly well that way. And I think it's important, of course, we're competitive, but it was always helpful just to remember they're, they're good folks on the other side too. And both of our jobs was to try to push this new technology. So we had a lot of, we had a lot in common about how do we take this new technology and how do you train? How do you get people excited about it? How do you spread this gospel into the uh, IR community? So we had lots of commonality there. But of course, we're two companies, different products. We compete on different attributes. But we did spend a lot of time over the years with myself and some of their management, just kind of, you know, the, the good, the bad, and uh, the opportunities and some of the frustrations with, you know, FDA or USNRC or trying to get adoption away from taste, as an example. So one of the things uh, that just occurred to me, I meant to ask it at some point on my outline, where did the name Therospheres come from? So great question. I, I mentioned how we, the, the original technology, I said we had licensed it from University of Missouri, is officially licensed to a company in, in Georgia called Therogenics. And Therogenics, they were really into brachytherapy seeds for prostate cancer. I think that's still used, not, not as common uh, in, in, in by urologists in nuclear medicine. And they had a product called Theraseed. And kind of thinking about this whole brachytherapy uh, world, they also then took the direct license from U University of Missouri and called it Therasphere. So Theragenics had Therasphere and Theraseed. I'm extrapolating. I haven't spoken with the folks at Theragenics, but I think their vision for the future, there was going to be more potential in these brachytherapy seeds for prostate cancer and not so much in Therasphere. So I don't believe they commercialized in any way, Therosphere. They in turn, I think before it was after some early animal work, maybe a, a few human patients had decided that it wasn't for them and that they kind of bet on Theraseed. So that's why we have a Therosphere and a Theraseed and, and Nordion licensed it in uh, from Therogenics. Okay. Interesting. So broad strokes, Riyadh, how do you see that the product that you guys have now is different from what you were working with early on? I mean, because at its core, you, you still have your same thing. But like, I guess what I'm looking for is like the big evolutions of the product that has made it easier, less friction. I mean, you can even talk about from the kits to the actual doses that you offer to getting it into the hands of the users. Right. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that there have been some operational improvements in terms of the dosages that are now available, the improvement in the administration kit, the systems that are made within the kit to make sure that, you know, there's no failure here and there, the checklist that we created actually in 2002 that some surgeons have made careers on now, just about checklists, uh, to be honest with you. And these sorts of things that I think I mean, those have certainly helped. I think the ability to deliver reliably has something. And I know that Boston is working on new models now to have even more rapid delivery of these of these agents, almost just in time. 
at its core, the bead's the same, spectivity is the same. We now know much more about, you know, sphere density, a lot of spheres, few spheres, prescriptive dosing, you know, how that works and what happens with survival in some cases when you give certain doses. So, I mean, we're, we're, we've evolved, we've taken that, the skeleton, the protoplasm of the device itself, and now really sort of refine utility based on indication, based on, you know, personalized patient approach as to this is what I need to do in this case. One of the things that I'm most proud of is while dosimetry is very interesting, of course, threshold dosimetry, in my opinion, is very interesting because if you exceed X dose, you will get Y result. That's a very attractive and very natural concept for us as IRs, right? I, you know, if I put this probe and I heat it to this, I'm going to get kill, et cetera. And so Y90 Therosphere is the only one that we can do that with where we have a prescribed, you put this dose, you can get this outcome. And that's very, very attractive. And now you got to fine tune it. How do you improve that outcome, et cetera? So I think there have been a, a lot of improvements. And obviously, as Peter was alluding to, taking now that baseline information we have about the device and how it works and now taking it extra hepatically. I mean, in my perception, this is the, I mean, this is a minority. The liver stuff is a minority. It's my belief that if there is a vessel perfusing a structure, it is the most efficient way to deliver radiotherapy much better than any external beam techniques as BRT, proton. They think about it, how much you can deliver in a small area that corrects for every limitation of external techniques. So it's only the beginning, man. All these organs and all these things that we deal with are vascular. There's some amazing things that I think we'll be able to do in the next 10 to 15 years. So that actually gets to my next point. You guys have been acquired by Boston Side, so now it's a Boston Side product. So who is in charge of like the direction now? Who decides, like, what's the next step for Therospheres? I think you're talking to him. I think so, too. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a really good scientific skeleton of a team at Boston Scientific, as well as uh, a lot of great physicians that we work with. Contrary to what some people might think, we talk to other doctors besides Riyadh. I think there's at least two others that we talk to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some of them aren't even in Chicago. True story. But that's really what it is. We're taking the scientific team and with some physicians outside of IR as well. And what do we do next? And if we take that basis, that baseline that Ray had said, it's not just radioactive chemoembolization. If you think about it as, this is what radiation oncology is, a whole profession, tinkers with software and machines. They're trying to re reduce that dose to the healthy tissue and increase that dose to the tumor. And I'm not going to speak for radiation oncology. I don't know if they're making incremental or stepwise changes and what they can uh, deliver, I just know what interventional radiologists can put a lot more radiation, magnitudes more on the tip of a catheter. If you guys can get a catheter there, you're going to deliver way more radiation. That's my scientific contribution here. So our, our thought is, let's then reimagine this as the, the most efficient and effective way to deliver a repeatable high dose of radiation. And to that point, we've even developed software to really just pick on the tumor versus the normal and separate those two. So now at Boston, we're working feverishly on where else can we go? And we've opened up our first trial extrahepatically. It's for a recurrent glioblastoma. And um, we hope to open next year, 2023, looking at prostate, how do we put Y90 in prostate cancer? We think the IR community can get behind that. It's almost like a take um, a PAE kind of a, a step further. And we're looking at other kinds of cancer beyond that. Again, we know radiation kills tumors. If you can minimize the normal, maximize the dose of the tumor, you, you've got something. And that's what interventional radiology has. So I, I believe it feels like it's been forever to get to this point. It has been 20 plus years, but I, I really think the more exciting stuff is still to come once we start experimenting. And this time, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot how to, how to interact with FDA, how to get the procedure down, how to deliver the dose. Another thing we're working on, you know, we have an IIS, uh, Chris, for splenic Y90. So we know that partial splenic embolization works. No, no doubt about it, it works. But it's very toxic, right? A lot of adverse events, liquefaction, we put tubes in there, it hurts, fusions. And so again, it's one of these things where I think the AE profile, while it works, the AE profile, is unacceptably high. And so what if we can convert the splenic reduction into a no MAA, because there's no shunting, into a you know single compartment dosimetry model, you order your microspheres, you go in there, and you infuse your Y90 at, a, at the right dose that results in splenic reduction. I mean, 
I've done eight patients. I'm doing dose escalation. So my dose is still too low. I don't have effect, but I have no safety issue. But imagine if I can get that to work. Now, then you expand it to the chemotherapy induced thrombocytopenia. I mean, that's a whole new thing that can be pretty simple for IRs, right? I mean, again, it's just about improving that AE profile. And so I hope that when I get to my 20th patient or so, I'll have a signal. But imagine if I can get that to work. I think that'd be super exciting for that part of, of what we do in IR. All very neat. One more question, but it's a two-parter to both of you. And I'll start with you, Riyadh. If you look back on the, the history, can you describe lowest moment when you thought, this is not happening. I've been putting a lot of time into this and, and maybe I've just backed the wrong horse. And then highest moment. Boy, I, th- I think the lowest moments... I mean, all the personal stuff I can deal with. You have to have thick skin to be in this business. But, you know, when, when you are now starting to submit data, papers of legitimate great outcomes in patients in a, in a very new novel concept, and you get extremely biased, captious, controversial type reviews from very high profile journals, that hurts. It hurts because th- they don't know they are informed by their own internal biases and are unable to sort of step back and say, well, really, did he really not admit any of those patients and it didn't hurt and he has the same outcomes? Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, we, we went through a phase where those commentaries are very painful to take, Chris, to be honest with you, because it doesn't really motivate you to do more or do something else like, well, you know what? Nobody really believes it, so why am I doing this? So it, it can be very challenging. Highest moments, to be honest with you, I have to say have to be fact that, you know, over 20 years, I've been able to interact with people from industry, from regulatory, from physicians that I continue to learn from. You know, I learn from everybody. I speak to all these KOLs Peter's talking about. It's a great idea. That's very interesting. And it's a lifelong learning approach. I mean, that to me has been, you know, really the highest part of what this experience is. Obviously, you know, getting a PMA and helping Boston get the first PMA and my God, EPOC is positive, the first positive IO trial. You would think those would be the no-brainer. You'd think those would be the no-brainer answers, but no, I, I don't think that way. That, that's really cool and all. But to me, the lifelong learning part is really the highest because it makes me, allows me to learn and to satisfy my intellectual curiosity about all of these things. And I think it just makes me more informed. And at the end of the day, that helps me treat my patients much, much better. And so th- that interaction to me has been the highest of the highest. Very nice. Peter, I'll throw it to you for closing remarks. High and low. Well, first of all, my wife calls me an awfulizer that I've managed to find awful in in most things. So I I had a couple low points. For me, honestly, it was uh, in my younger days, it was the mid-2000s when it was the arrival of Debs. And I was young, I was excited. We're rehab. We had a couple other doctors. I felt like we're building a team, some of the other early doctors. And when Debs came out, the number of all those doctors that kind of said, well, actually, this is really the future, walked away, not in a mean way, but just their attention went over to Debs. And I remember a lot of doctors telling me, you should probably just pack up and go. So that made me feel like, oh, man, I thought I was onto something, and now we're not. It really kind of was a gut punch. With my first kind of career, um, really gut punch, and that, that really hurt. I think the second was when nivolumab was approved. This is Updevo. And... Kind of version two of everyone saying, IR, some IRs like, we're going back to legs and veins and picks and ports and tips because, you know, medical oncology is kind of going to win the day. And I think what we've seen is the future's combo. Patients are going to get the best outcome when they get a local treatment and a systemic treatment. I think my high, for me, it was getting the PMA, getting off that HDE. That HDE was terrible. It was super tough as a company to manage an HDE. And it just felt like the validation. FDA it's like fighting windmills. It was, Riyadh can talk to the, probably better than I would because as a commercial person, I was not supposed to be at FDA meetings, but the continual kind of push from FDA was super, I just took really personally, took really hard. So to get that, that was the high and I'm going to reserve that because I think for me, even getting the HDE or the PMA, my new high I forecast will be as if we can treat a patient with glioblastoma and it ends up being kind of safe. We don't do any really awful damage and there's some effect. I think just that for me anyways, well, it's such a terrible disease and it just for for me will hopefully give me hope that we can really go outside the liver. If you ask me this in a couple more months after we get the first couple patients in, that'll be my new high. All right, good. We'll check in. All right, Riyadh, Peter, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.